Today, I'm excited about finishing Ephesians chapter 2. This is uh, either the seventh or eighth week on the first two chapters of Ephesians. When I started this, didn't know exactly how many weeks it would take, but we're going to finish up Ephesians chapter 2 today. Next week, we'll shift to our theme for Easter that you can see on the little card, which is darkness to light. We'll do that for three weeks for Palm Sunday for Easter and the week after. Uh, last week was part one of this message I'm calling Reconciled and United. Reconciled and United. And we started it with this big thought that we will also use today. And that big thought is that God wants us to be reconciled to him, reconciled to one another, and to be united in Christ. Reconciled to him, reconciled to others, and to be united in Christ. We talked about the definitions of those two words, and we need to know those today as well. Reconciled and united. Reconciled means literally to restore friendship or harmony. That's what it means to be reconciled to someone. To be united means literally to be joined together for a common purpose. So we're restored with each other to friendship and we are joined together. However, before we can be reconciled with each other, we have to be reconciled to Christ. And we talked about that last week. That's what those verses we went through last week were telling us. We spent time talking about how the Gentiles and we, we were adversaries to Christ. That there was a physical difference between the Gentiles and the Jews, and it was a practice, the custom of circumcision. And the Jewish people, they flat refused to accept anyone who didn't practice that tradition. If you didn't practice it, you could not be a person of God. Many of the Jewish people had placed their hope in a physical tradition and not a change in their heart. Jesus came, however, to abolish all of that. Abolish is a big word we're going to talk about in a minute. The Gentiles, it says in verse 12, uh, we talked about this last week. They were separate from Christ and they were foreigners to the covenant of the promise. Foreigners to that covenant, uh, that promise that God made to Abraham and to David in the Old Testament. In short, the Gentiles, they were without hope. They were far from God because they'd never known about him. They didn't grow up learning about him, who he was. And therefore, the Gentiles, it says, had turned to idols. Uh, we talked last week that they were worshiping the created and not the creator. They were worshiping the things that God had created. Jesus, however, and this is what we talked about at the end of last week, he had brought hope that they could draw near to God. And last week we spent the, the end of our service celebrating the hope that we have in Jesus. And we sang that beautiful song, Living Hope. Now the Jewish people, they had staked their hope on a tradition. They had known God and they were God's people. But in many cases they had placed more hope in their rules and their regulations than they should have. And that really resonates with me having grown up in church. But Jesus came to abolish the law so we wouldn't rely on it to save us. He came to abolish the law so we wouldn't rely on it to save us. And we left off with this thought that in the kingdom of God, there is no good or bad. There's no black or white. There's no clean or dirty. There's no expensive clothes or cheap clothes. There is only the hope we have now that we are reconciled to God. And we celebrated that hope. With all those things in mind, with the table set, let's read together Ephesians 2, 15 through 22. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. 
by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. See, friends, once we're reconciled to God, Paul's got two more things for us here that he wants to accomplish in this chapter. One of those things we see in these verses that God wants us to be reconciled to each other. Reconciled to each other. And this is kind of in verses 14 through 19. We established last week that uh, being reconciled to God was the first priority. But what Paul is saying is we can't stop there. You get reconciled to God, but you can't stop there. Yes, the Gentiles, they now have full, full access to Christ. They're no longer foreigners to the covenant. Yes, the Jewish people, they're free from the legalism that had marked them and held them in bondage at this point. But there's more to do. Now the two have got to become one. And people who are like-minded can accomplish so much more together than they ever can apart. Also, people who are not like-minded, at least on important things, they'll struggle to get anything done. Right? You get two people in the same room trying to accomplish a purpose and they don't agree on the basic purpose, might as well not have them both there. So before we can accomplish what God has for us as God's people, we've got to become like-minded so we can be reconciled and restored to one another. And that was taken care of when Jesus set aside the law and he made it so everyone could be reconciled to God in the same way. We can accept Christ into our hearts. Now, the more common translation of verse 15, uh, we read set aside in the new NIV there. The more common translation of verse 15 is actually that word abolished. And uh, we read that word last week in one of the verses. But in studying this week, I found that the Greek word that they're translating there, set aside or abolished, it means something like to make ineffective or powerless. One other place it's used in the New Testament is when Jesus is uh, doing a parable and he's talking about the ground being used up by a tree that is barren. That's in Luke chapter 13. So what he's saying is the law has been set aside. The law has no power. Now Paul talks about in Romans, if you read Romans, about how the law itself isn't bad. The things the law tells us to do are not bad. Inherently, the law was telling them if they obeyed those things, this is how you give God your life and have a pure heart before him in the Old Testament. But as sinful people, we're not capable of doing it without God's help. Right? The law is not bad, but we can't keep it without God's help. I just thought of an example this week. I always talk to you about my, my little boys, John and Luke. Luke is six, and Luke, Luke's problem is never going to be that he will not let you know what he thinks. He is glad to let you know what he thinks. He's always got an opinion. And uh, it might be wild. Now, the other day, we were driving, and Luke said to me, Dad, I could drive this car. He's six. I said, well, and before I guess anything, he said, we've got a little power wheel, you know. He said, it's just like driving our Jeep, Dad. I, I could do it. I said, well, um, I don't think you can reach the pedals, for one. 
He's like, no, someone could help me. They could do the pedals. And I think I know how to drive the car. It's just like driving the Jeep. Now, inherently driving the car isn't bad. He just would technically need help to do it, right? Now, the help he needs is 10 more years of training, driver's training, me sitting next to him in the driver's seat, a lot of that stuff, right? We couldn't keep the law by ourselves. Luke can't drive the car by himself. Driving the car is not a bad thing, but he needs help to do it. Obeying the law is not a bad thing, but we need help to do it. The law in and of itself, think the Ten Commandments law, okay? Not like the speed limit law, but think Ten Commandments, the law in and of in and of itself, isn't bad. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt have no other God before me, thou shalt not covet. Think Ten Commandments. Those things, without the Lord in our heart, they are hard to live every single day. Lord in our heart, they are hard to live every single day. Didn't come to take the best of one and the best of the other and make some kind of hybrid mishmash together. Look what it says, one new humanity. And Jesus came to make the Gentiles and the Jews a brand new creation. He came to take two people that were far apart and make them one brand new thing. A new people, a brand new people. And when Jesus' work was finished, it didn't much resemble what either one used to look like. Now, I feel like a good marriage is a great example here. We even used the phrase earlier when two become one. And, you know, all metaphors and illustrations, they eventually break down. So I'm not saying you or your husband or wife are like the Jews and the Gentiles necessarily. But it's just an illustration, okay? You see, when two people get married at first, they are very, very different people. Thank you, Pastor Almeida. <laughs> Antonio's sitting right there. She's allowed to say that. So the thing is, all of us have been there, right? Even if you think you are not, or even if you think you are not very, very different people, when you get married, you find out that you are. Right? I mean, my wife and I, we have a ton of stuff in common. We spent a couple of years dating, and she was in Seattle, and we long distance, uh, you know, talked, and I went and visited her. She came and visited me. We did it right. But man, there's so many things that we just did not know. We were different people, right? I did not know my wife's not in here, I don't think, so I can say a little bit without getting in trouble. You know, I did not know that my wife, the way she likes to organize the pantry, is to just jam as many things on those shelves as possible. And if you move one thing, the rest of it might fall right on you. I did not know that. We were different people. She did not know that when she asked me to uh, fold the towels in tri-folds instead of two-folds, that I would have no earthly idea how to do that, for one. How do you even do that? Or why? What is the reason? Those are just a couple of small examples, right? When we get married, we think we know each other, but we really don't. We're different people. But in a marriage that is good and healthy and that God is in the middle of, God takes the husband and wife and he makes a brand new thing out of it. It's not two separate people that he mashes together. He makes a brand new thing. Now, what I do is I help organize the shelves and maybe build some new shelves so she has more room. And what I do is I begrudgingly learn how to fold the towels and three things and she's happy, right? In both the husband's and the wife's case, their priorities change because they're now thinking of the other first instead of themselves. And their priorities change, their day-to-day -day life changes. And, and in a marriage, this happens over time. It doesn't happen immediately. Those of you that are young marrieds, it's okay. You've got time. It'll, it'll be good. But the amazing thing about God bringing the Jews and the Gentiles together is that he did it all at once. 
They had centuries of time where they were against each other, and Jesus came, and he put them together all at once and made them one. That's how big of a deal what God has done between the Gentiles and the Jews is. He didn't just set their differences aside. It says here that through the cross, he has put to death hostility. It no longer exists anymore. Through the cross, he's put to death their hostility. That was his purpose, it says in those verses. Jesus didn't make the Gentiles into Jews or make the Jews into Gentiles. Instead, he made an entirely new creation out of the two. And he did that by removing the point of contention between them. And for both sides, it was this whole new way of thinking. Remember, the Gentiles had been strangers to the covenant. The Jewish people had been too focused on tradition. And so once they are all brought together, uh, in verse 17, it talks about this beautiful word, peace. Ephesians 2.17, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. Now, you know, as well as I do, that there has to be a little turmoil before there can be peace. A lot of times, if there's going to be peace, you've got to have a little craziness. Does anyone here like to play board games? Have any board game players in here? My wife loves board games so much that we could play board games every day and it would not be enough board games. She loves board games. You're probably wondering why we have a trivial pursuit up here. You're thinking, are we just going to ask each other questions that we would never need to ask in any other context? Now, board games, right, they come in a box like this. This is actually one that we had here. They come in a box like this. Now, when you have uh, a board game, the first thing you've got to do, because it doesn't come out of the box ready to play, the first thing you've got to do is you have to create a little chaos in order to play the game, right? So I'm going to get this stuff out of the way here. Could have had an assistant, but I wanted to do it on my own, right? So got to get the board out if I'm going to play this. So here we have the instructions. Very important. If, like my wife, her favorite thing to do is to read the instructions to the game. She hearts reading instructions to games. She loves reading the instructions. you got to have a Trivial Pursuit. Uh, if you've never played this game, it's about completely random trivia, right? you got to have this little card so you know what category you're getting at. And then if you want to play, you got to take this little bag, right? Up, and you got to dump all these pieces out. Get that little blue guy there. But still not ready to play, right? If we're going to play the game, we got to create a little chaos, before we create any peace. The same way, Jesus came to earth to bring peace. But first, he had to take the box, take the lid off, and dump that thing out. Create some chaos. He had to dump everything out so it could be arranged in the way he needed it to be in order to accomplish his purpose. Now, if you read through the Gospels, you will see that Jesus totally messed up their way of thinking when he came in the New Testament. So I'm going to give you a few examples that we could spend all morning on if we wanted. First of all, right, Jesus came to earth innocently. We're going to talk next week about how he rode, he rode into town on a donkey. The Jewish people expected him to come, but they expected him to come with a sword and to deliver them violently. When Jesus became, uh, began his earthly ministry, uh, we know he lived his life for 30 years. In the last three years of his life, he began what we call his earthly ministry. He began to shatter all kinds of boundaries. Matthew 23, uh, you can go read this. He called all of the smart and religious people, the people who were going to church all the time, he called them whitewashed tombs. 
saying essentially you look really nice on the outside, but inside you are dead. You look great, but inside it's a bunch of dry bones. He said that to the church people. The, the Jewish people had their temple where they had continued to think and believe that God's presence was, even though Jesus was there. And in Matthew 21, Jesus went in there where the people were profiting off of it, and he turned over their tables. Right? He turned over the tables. He called them a den of robbers. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus healed this man that had been stricken with leprosy. Leprosy is a terrible disease we don't deal with much anymore. And it doesn't seem that controversial until you remember that Jewish men, like Jesus, they were forbidden to even touch someone that had leprosy. You couldn't touch him. If you touched him, you were unclean. You had to go outside the city, go through this long cleansing thing. Now, Jesus, I am 100% certain. In this life, you will have trouble, right? Because sometimes when we give our lives to God and he starts moving the pieces around, it can seem a little jumbled, right? But when Jesus comes and he gives peace to our heart, man, he starts, he starts putting the pieces in the right place, right? He starts putting us all right where we're supposed to go. Starts putting the pieces in place on the game board and the dice in the right place and the boxes of questions right there. So it can be what it's supposed to be, what it was made to be. The game board is set up, friends, not just for us, but for the entirety of humanity. All of us can know God through the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 even says it right here, for through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And when we, as his people, are of like heart and mind, then we can be faithful to share that peace with those who are close by and here, and those who are far away. So because we are reconciled to Christ, we now can be reconciled to each other. You were probably hoping I would break some questions out and start asking you random trivial pursuit questions. That's for another day, I guess. We can have a game night. In these final three verses, we can see this, that God wants us to be united in Christ. United in Christ. Let's just read those together quickly. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. We started out last week talking about how all over this world, we become adversaries with others. Us humans, uh, we can find a way to argue about anything, right? We can do it. I've had people in my life who uh, they've been being argumentative and I say, you know what? The sky is blue. And they're like, well, actually, today, I think it's a shade of gray, right? As humans, we can come up with anything we want to 
to be adversarial about. Even as fellow believers in Christ, if you've been a part of a church for very long, you've heard people argue about the color of the carpet and the color of the chairs and the volume of the music and the size of the piano and fill-in-the-blank thing, right? We find adversaries when it comes to our hobbies, right? We have adversaries when it comes to music. There are certain people that will just die on the hill. Music was better in the 70s than it is now. Maybe it was. We have people that will die on the hill of sports, right? I can talk sports with you all day long. I remember vividly, uh, I, had a, I lived with uh, one of my friends in college. We lived at his parents' house in the summer. He's a big Mariners fan. I was a big Dodgers fan. And we were laying in bed at like 1 a.m. just raising our voice at each other about whose bullpen was better, the Dodgers or Mariners. Didn't even matter because at the time, the interleague play hadn't started. They couldn't even play each other unless it was the World Series. And his mom came down and finally was like, be quiet. <laughs> Jeremy's one of my best friends, right? <laughs> we were arguing about bullpens. You can argue about bird watching. You can argue about, you can be adversaries with someone about whether or not the toilet paper should go over the front or behind the back. Guess what? It doesn't matter because it's all going down the drain anyway, right? <laughs> told you last week that when I was eight, I defined people for a couple of years at school by whether or not they wore green. Because the Dodgers had played the A's in the World Series. And if you wore green, you were an A's fan. Increasingly, we, as people, we find adversaries when it comes to culture. We tend to define people by certain beliefs or even just by their opinions. We don't call them by their name. We'll say, oh, that guy, he believes in this, or that lady, she believes in this. We tend to define people by the political candidate they vote for. We define people by how they vote on specific issues. We, uh, on specific issues, we, uh, pretty much whatever opinion we want to have. After church, I could take out my phone, I could Google something and support pretty much any, any opinion I want to have. I think I said one of my very first weeks, one of my favorite anecdotes is that there's like 7% of the American population, if you pull them anonym, anonymously, they think all of our leaders in the nation are actually lizard aliens with human skin on. You go Google it, 7% of people think that that is a real thing. You can find someone to validate anything you want. But here's what I think God wants us to know, friends. It's easy to find adversaries. You can find someone to be against, no problem. But it's God's heart that we find common ground. It's God's heart we find common ground. As we get ready to read these last few verses, we just read them, actually we won't read them again, but I want to read you a quote from this pastor named Tim Keller. Now I will warn you, Tim Keller is a Presbyterian. We're good assemblies of God people here, right? So don't hold that against him. Denominations are something we actually get adversarial about as well. Right? Baptists or Presbyterians or Assemblies or non-denominational or whatever. But I read a quote from this guy a while back that I haven't been able to shake. And I think it sheds light on this subject for us. On these verses that we read. I'm reading this to you in the context of other believers. Other people that know the Lord. Tim Keller. He says this. Tolerance is not about approving an opinion you do not hold. It's about treating the person who is saying what you can powerfully disagree with. With respect, humility, and love. So we read, we read those verses and we talk for a few moments about unity in Christ. 
I want to stress, I'm not saying we don't ever disagree with other believers. Just that when we do, we focus more on the author and finisher of our faith than we do our differences. We focus more on the author and finisher of our faith than anything else. On the common ground, there's level at the foot of the cross. You might disagree with people, friends, but the ground's level at the foot of the cross. You see, I believe that because God has brought us all that peace through Jesus Christ, that we're now on the mission together. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. When Paul says, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, and members of God's household, he's talking specifically to the Gentiles. He's talking to almost every one of us. It's an extension of what we were talking about before when it said they were once far away, but now they've been brought near. But there's a reason Paul's coming back around to it, because they weren't having an easy time figuring it out. Because these Gentiles, they had begun to attend churches with Jewish people, and they would have at first very much felt like outsiders. These Gentiles hadn't been to anything like this. They would have not have known the customs or the songs, or the order of service, or anything like that. The Gentiles wouldn't have known any of that stuff. There's this very obvious correlation here when it comes to how we greet people at church. And I will say, uh, we have found, my family and I, like I said, we're new. We found this church to be incredibly friendly from the moment we walked in. And it's something I've heard over and over from, from people that are, visit our church for the first time. They always say how friendly Engage Boise is. And I don't think that's a fake thing. There's a whole bunch of friendly, awesome people here. I've also heard people say, not just here, but dozens or possibly even hundreds of times over the years, that's why I like a small church. If it gets too big, it's not friendly. We challenge you a little bit today, friends, and say this. Whether a church is accepting or not has everything to do with the heart of the people and not much to do with the size of the gathering has everything to do with the heart of the people. And I can tell you this. I have been to small groups that are very, 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 very unfriendly. Have you ever been to one of those things? There's like six people there, and obviously you are the one that is not supposed to be there. I've told you before that I, I like to play basketball, and I went to a, uh, not, not a Christian church, but I went to this church to play basketball, and I played one game. And uh, they stood up afterwards, and they said, if you are not from this church, uh, you have to leave. And I was the only guy. They could have just really easily said, hey, there's actually just people from our church, you know. It would have been really easy for them to do that. I've been in small groups that are very unfriendly. And I've been in big services that are incredibly friendly. It has everything to do with the heart of the people. It's the most important ingredient. So what is it that Paul is getting at here? And subsequently, what is it that makes this place welcoming on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights? If you haven't been here on Wednesday nights, man, it's awesome. It's welcoming. It's fun. You should come. It's remembering that we are all members of God's household. We're all in God's family. It says that all over the New Testament. No matter where we came from, what we look like, or even, I hesitate to say this because you might get mad at me, but even what our political beliefs are. If we are in Christ, we are God's family. If you accept Christ, you're in God's family. Look at what these verses continue to say. Verse 20, we are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. 
The early church, friends, it was built on the testimony of those that had seen Jesus with their own two eyes, seen him walk the earth. This is what Paul's referring to when he talks here about the apostles and the prophets. The disciples of Jesus, they would, of course, been incredibly honored and revered, just the same as we do today. So Paul is saying something really big here when he tells the Gentiles they now have the same status in the kingdom of God that those disciples had. When he tells these Gentiles, you have the same status. your political beliefs when you start to live what the Bible says? Absolutely. But we can choose to let our common ground in Christ, the fact that he's our cornerstone, be the one thing that unites us. And know this, friends, this is something that's given me comfort over the years, and I've seen it be borne out time and time again. If God is big enough and powerful enough to create this world, and he's kind enough to send his only son to save me from my sins. And he's definitely big enough and kind enough to change someone's heart. To align with his if that's what's needed. And I'll tell you this. God's got a much better chance of changing someone's heart than I do of arguing them into a change. I can type and type and post and post and argue and argue. And God can do it with snap of his fingers. And when we, despite our differences allow Christ to be our cornerstone, then something really incredible happens. Look what verse 21 and 22 say. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You see, when we are in him, as his church, when we are in him, we start to become God's beautiful, amazing, living, breathing body of Christ. When all of us are in, in it together. Once that cornerstone is in place, then we can all be painstakingly shaped, chiseled, moved around, put in just the right spot in the building. This is one of many places in the New Testament, actually, where God tells us that the, the church is not a building. The church is the people of God, and it's united together for one cause, and that is the cause of Christ. You know, previous to Jesus coming to earth, we didn't spend much of time on this, but the Gentiles were not allowed to even enter the temple. There was an outer court where they could go into, but they couldn't go into the real thing. And when Jesus died and rose again, there was a, a veil that was torn, opened the whole thing up. But God is shattering every preconceived notion here because now not only can the Gentiles enter the temple, but it says here in Ephesians, they are a part of it. Not only can they go in the physical building, they are a part of the temple. The place they were once forbidden to be a part of, they're now a part of building. God's now building his church here. And we, just like the apostles and prophets before us, uh, we're, we get to be an integral part of it. Not by our works or because we deserve it, remember. We don't deserve it. It's because God gives us his grace. Because of God's grace. Because of God's fantastic grace, we are the dwelling place for his spirit on earth. 
That's the reason, because of God's grace. That's what Ephesians tells us here in this last verse of chapter 2. So the question is, where does that leave us? There's this key point in verse 22. It says this, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives. Notice it doesn't say there that we are built. It says we are in the process of being built. What that says to me is that we all individually, all as this church engage Boise, all as the big C church, all of us are a work in progress. God's always moving and working. And when it comes to that work, we have to understand it's God's people, friend. There's no room in the church for many of the things that our culture says should divide us. You will turn on the news after church, you're going to see a whole bunch of things that the news says should divide us as God's people. But what Paul's saying here is in God's church, there's no room for racism. There's no room for rich versus poor. There's no room for lifelong Christian versus new Christian. It's only Christ is the cornerstone. And we're all pieces of the building, magnificent pieces of the building, magnificently built around him. I want to make sure I clarify. Does that mean we compromise on what the Bible says because an issue is culturally touchy? Absolutely not. We still believe God's word is 100% authoritative and true and it applies to today. Friends, I'll just give you an example. I will argue until I am blue in the face about the sanctity of life. Just because it's culturally touchy doesn't mean we don't talk about it and we don't stand on what the Bible says. But we love regardless. Not on the basis of color of skin or, or social status. We love regardless. And we remember this, friends. We've said this a, a few times over the last several months. We remember that you don't have to believe to belong. You don't have to believe everything I believe to belong in this church, to belong to the people of God. It's part of Engage Boise and in the city of Boise. We are a part of God's church along with Eastwind and River City and Bridgepoint and all the churches in Southeast Boise. And all of us, if we are in Him, we are a dwelling place for God's Spirit. Now there are absolutely things that we stand on, friends. One of those is that uh, the only way to be saved is to accept the Lord Jesus Christ into your life as your Savior. I believe He died and rose again. We're going to celebrate that over these next few weeks. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes across this room as we get ready to close today? That's what we're going to do today, friends. I just want to give you a moment to, uh, to seek the Lord, uh, to speak with Him in the quietness of your heart. Lord, I pray over your people this morning. We talked about this more over the last couple of weeks, but Lord, I pray that uh, for those that have been striving, trying so hard to please you, I pray that you would let them know that your grace is all they need. Lord, if there's people here, um, I know there's people here, Lord, because I feel it in my heart that uh, they feel like they're not enough for you. I just pray that you would help them know today that you love them desperately. You sent your only son for them. And Jesus, I pray that I pray that you would rescue and you would move. 
you would do the things that only you can do. Lord, I pray as we stand and sing in a moment that uh, uh, you would unify us behind your cause, and that is the cause of Christ. Lord, I pray you would do the redeeming work that only you can do. And when someone comes to this place and they accept you, they feel your presence, I pray that you would change hearts in such a strong and a powerful way that we don't have to say a word. Thank you, Lord, that because of your grace and mercy, we can be reconciled to you. We can be restored to one another. And Lord Jesus, as engaged boy, say, I pray that you would unify us behind you. Lord, I pray that we would stand strong for the things that matter to you, the things that are in your word, but that we would love regardless. Jesus, you're strong enough to save us, and we're so grateful for that. Would you unify us? Friends, would you stand this morning? Pastor Almeida is going to lead us for a moment uh, before we close, and uh, we'll sing together.